Welcome to the Conscious Clinician Podcast. We have honest conversations about the triumphs and challenges of pelvic health physical therapy. Each week, we bring you inspiration and practical tips to thrive in your work. And now, here's your hosts, Dr. Monica Stefanovich and Dr. Sammy Steele. Welcome back to the show. Hey, Sammy, what is on your mind tonight? Hey, Monica. I am excited to talk to you a little bit more about our topic from last episode, which is emotional intelligence. This is such a broad topic. I think we needed a part two. So here it is. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) So today I'd like to focus on outcomes in relation to emotional intelligence. Outcomes for both the patient and also outcomes for the provider, because emotional intelligence can affect both sides of that interaction. So I think it's important for us to understand in what ways those things relate. And what the benefits are of focusing on your emotional intelligence, because it is work. It's going to require that you practice. So at the end of this episode, we're going to wrap up with strategies for fostering emotional intelligence. If you missed last week's episode, we talked about the components of emotional intelligence And today we're going to talk about how to develop those components. So make sure to go back and take a listen and then come back to this episode afterwards for some actionable strategies. And Sammy, I know that you've dug into patient outcomes and emotional intelligence. Our hypothesis, both of us thought, well, if you're more emotionally intelligent, you're going to have better outcomes. That makes sense to me in my gut. So when you went to the research, though, what did you come back with? So in my research on this topic of the connection between the emotional intelligence of a provider and the patient outcomes, I was really surprised to find that there's not a whole lot of hard data out there. And a lot of it's this really theoretical link between those two concepts. And I think one of the most interesting points that I learned about in researching this topic was that one of the leading causes of death in the United States is medical errors. And medical errors have been found to be highly related to miscommunication and breakdowns in communication between provider and patient. In fact, 80% of medical errors stem from this breakdown. Wow. Yeah, it's a huge amount of them. So to me, that is an area of opportunity that is hugely missed. We have this communication breakdown. And what does that come from? That comes from misinterpreting what patients say because we have a different lens through which we're viewing their condition possibly having cultural differences, not understanding what emotions the patient is bringing to the table. There's so many things that tie in here with emotional intelligence that I think it's a huge area of opportunity for us to actually improve patient outcomes. And I'm hopeful in the future we'll see more data on this because I think it's a link that's there and I think it hasn't been found. And maybe it's challenging to study for a variety of reasons to draw those implications. And I also wonder what type of error it would be most useful in reducing because medical error also seems to me like a wide category of things. And from some of our other review of emotional intelligence, it may be linked to certain factors, but not all factors. So if you're not teasing things out enough, it may be hard to say, oh, emotional intelligence accounted for this difference. You may need to say, okay, which outcomes specifically and then why are certain outcomes linked with it and why are certain outcomes not linked with it. But interestingly, emotional intelligence is being studied in relationship to burnout. 
So burnout is a quick review is not a term for us to throw around lightly. It's the one end of the spectrum. I'll say opposite of wellness. If we think of wellness and health and vitality on one side, burnout is the opposite side of the coin. Burnout is defined by three key characteristics, emotional exhaustion, disconnection, depersonalization, and a cynical attitude towards work. So emotional exhaustion, exactly what it sounds like. Your tank is on empty. You've got nothing left to give. You're feeling tired. Exhausted is the perfect word. Depersonalization is where you stop seeing the humanity of your patient. It's like that old school doctor we've all heard of who doesn't say, oh, my patient with knee pain. They're like, yeah, that ACL I did the other day. <laughs> it's really not seeing the humanity behind the diagnosis or the condition that you're treating. And cynicism, exactly what it sounds like. The grass is not greener anywhere. Everything is terrible. This is not going to get better. No one's going to get better. Everyone is a tough patient to treat. And everyone's at fault for their condition. And everyone is a lazy patient or non-compliant. And mm -hmm. they're at fault for what they're coming in for. And nothing I do is going to change their crappy attitude towards PT, whatever. But all cynical attitudes that we hear frequently. Yes, I think if you're going on rants all the time, that's a great <laughs> sign that you're feeling cynical. Red flag. Um, <laughs> if you're using words like everybody always never, mm. trigger alert, you're probably feeling cynical. Yeah. You know, that's, that's not the case. There's so many shades of gray. But when you're feeling burned out, speaking from personal experience, oh my gosh, yes, it does feel like everyone always, all the time, never gets it and nothing will ever get better and the whole system needs to burn to the ground. And we're not going to talk about the healthcare system. That sounds like an entirely separate podcast, but we will focus back on burnout now. So those are the three components of burnout. That's one end of the spectrum. Maybe you've been at that end of the spectrum. Maybe you've witnessed people there and you can recognize it now. Emotional intelligence has a protective effect against burnout. It's shown to have an inverse relationship, meaning the more emotionally intelligent providers are, the more resilient they are to burnout. And this is thought to work by emotional intelligence increasing resilience and thereby reducing how much burnout you experience, meaning you have a better tolerance of stress. You can handle more, insert the type of stress it is, and you have better tools to cope with it. You're starting off from a better place and you're going to end up in a better place. Yeah. You have more capacity. Like That's the word I think of. And I think of a fuel tank. And there are things that add to your fuel tank and there are things that drain your fuel tank. Yeah. I think that this relationship between emotional intelligence and burnout is something that we can reflect on in all of ourselves. In learning about this topic, it really resonated with me on a personal level from my experience. And I remember this day that I had in residency and I had a patient who disclosed domestic violence to me and then she cried for a lot of the session. And then the following patient disclosed that she had been sexually assaulted. I remember after these two back-to-back -back patients, I had to rush off to go do a module. And I remember having no space to process this and also no skills to process this. To be honest, I didn't know what to say, what to do, how to act, how to be. Simply thinking to hand them a box of tissues was like the most that I could process at that time because my emotional intelligence wasn't as developed as I, I think it is now. I think it's improving. 
So I remember coming to that module and I just was so fried. And I just remember thinking, everyone's crying all the time, right? That's the first little red flag. Everyone does this X, Y, and Z, right? It's like all of these pelvic PT patients are always just crying all the time. Everyone's such a basket case. I can't do this. I can't deal with all of these people crying. It's just too much. This is so annoying. I just remember feeling almost irritated and angry because I was so overwhelmed. And I really remember that contributing to this feeling of burnout. I can't do this. I can't handle this level of emotion. And I think that speaks to some of the aspects of burnout that you described. It's like this overwhelming emotional exhaustion. Like they were taking everything from me, these patients. I didn't know how to regulate myself in those situations. And I definitely had these feelings of cynicism. Everyone's just crying all the time and everyone's just such a basket case. That's a total cynic statement to have. And then I felt detached, like I want to get away from this. I want to detach from this job. So I feel like I had all of those little factors of burnout going in my head. I think that because I didn't have those skills of emotional intelligence, it led to me feeling that way because it created the sense of helplessness. I am stuck here. I don't know what to do with this. And this is my life now. With developing some of those skills for myself and also reflecting on the emotions of others, I'm able to just sit with that instead of having it wreck me. And if you have any stories to share about this, I think that's all so relevant. We all have those moments where if we lack that emotional intelligence, we don't know what to do and we can get burned out from that. Because we're missing the ability to identify emotions in ourselves and others or we're misidentifying those. So if you think about this parallel to differential diagnosis, if your differential diagnosis list is off you don't know what's going on, you're going to struggle with your subjective, your exam, and your intervention. And that is totally what happens when your emotional vocabulary is off or you don't have one. Because for me, I couldn't identify what I was feeling. I would just feel a lot. That was what I could say is I feel a lot. I feel frazzled. I just feel burnt, tired, exhausted. I want to get away from everything. And I thought that was, at the time, I thought that was really communicating how I felt at this period of burnout that I'm reflecting on. But it wasn't emotional intelligence. Let me say this. It was the beginnings of emotional intelligence, but I wasn't able to pick out the moments that contributed to it along the way. I could only see it when it was this big, huge, overwhelming thing. And burnout doesn't happen overnight. That's the one thing that I've learned from my experience and from all my readings is burnout is death by a thousand cuts, Mm. if we can use that phrase. It's not the one patient that shows up. I think trauma can happen that way. You can be so traumatized from one event, but burnout, there's stuff that's been happening It may feel like it came on suddenly, though, if you're not able to see all the signs along the way. If I missed every stop sign, then, of course, the only thing that's going to stop me is the wall at the end that I crash into because I never noticed that I was busting through red lights and not honoring my own emotions and my own boundaries and my effort to provide patient care. So I definitely resonate with your story. I remember that day, actually, it was the OB modules, because if you remember, we talked about it after OB. Yeah. I wondered if you remember that. (laughs) I did. yeah. Yeah. And it was one of the first times that we started having this conversation around 
essentially emotional intelligence and self-management and practicing with a different level of mindfulness. And I totally remember that. It was very thought-provoking for me as well. And I really appreciated you bringing that up. So that segues into strategies. These are strategies to develop your emotional intelligence. I want to be clear that these are not necessarily strategies if you're in the midst of burnout. I personally strongly believe that if you're feeling the things we described, that you gather a team around you for help personally and professionally. And you really need that team. You cannot hide burnout on your own and try to fix it by yourself. Really take my word for it. I tried a lot, a couple times, actually. (laughs) And the best results that I had were from working with a therapist, from working with the people on my team, my managers that I worked with, and having a mentor that helped and opening up with friends and family about it. So that is one small caveat. Now, We do want to talk about how to facilitate these skills. So the first thing is to think about your energy. Let go of the words emotion. Let go of the words burnout. Release all of that. What is your energy level? It varies throughout the day. It's not perfect. It's not attainable for it to be a 10 at all times. And you're never a zero. You're somewhere on the scale. But if we use that zero to 10 scale, and we figure out what your energy is, we can first start to pay attention to things that increase your energy and things that decrease your energy. And everybody has different things that do it for them. There are some general categories. Social interaction, not just any social interaction, social interaction with people that you find supportive, engaging, fun, etc. Whatever gets you going. Learning mentorship, hobbies, exercise, nature, music. These are general categories that people will find their own individuality in. Sammy and I may have different music that energizes us, but maybe we both still have that song or those few songs that just help you feel good, you know? And maybe, I know she loves to be in the mountains. You're not going to find me camping unless I'm glamping. (laughs) But you can give me a beach any day. Don't call me to hike 15 miles. Don't do it. Call me. But (laughs) call Sammy. Do not call Monica. But, you know, nature, again, maybe for me, it's being in my backyard in my garden or on a beach somewhere. So consider those universal themes and then consider things that drain you. These can be big things like, yes, that patient with all the things, who is always feeling helpless and down. And you leave and you're like, wow, I tried to do my best, but that was just, that was not fun. Yeah. (laughs) Even if you did your best, even if you feel proud of how you interacted with them, there's still some people where you're like, gosh, we don't have a lot in common or our personalities just are not a great match. And that was a drain. And then there's the small things like having to do notes. (laughs) energy drain, having to check corporate email, energy drain, maybe vacuuming, maybe a fight with your spouse or a friend or a family member. So there's things that increase our energy. There's things that decrease our energy. And we really give ourselves a lot of power when we can name those things. So the first activity would be to grab a sheet of paper Divide it into four boxes, maybe fold it or just draw a horizontal and a vertical line down the middle. And in the top two boxes, write out the activities 
that energize you and the people that energize you. And then in the bottom two, you're going to write out tasks and activities that deplete you and people that deplete you. And be specific. All patience is not an appropriate answer. (laughs) It's usually a red flag. But maybe it's a specific type of patient, right? People who catastrophize. Maybe they're really hard for you to work with or people with a specific type of diagnosis. And then you can start to hone that in even more. But when you have this list in front of you, you've already increased the first skill of self-awareness. So, you know, doing this activity was really eye-opening for me. And I think when you practice the activity on paper and you get enough repetitions with it, you get to start doing it in your mind, which is ultimately what we want to happen is for you to be able to have an interaction and say, wow, that patient interaction was draining. Because when you identify it, you can pick a way to cope with it. When you have it identified that it's draining, you still feel the drain. And for me, that's when I reach for food and social media. I'm like, get me out of here. I need a snack. I need something that's going to energize me. So you know what I reach for? It's candy. It's Mm. chocolate. It's carbs. It's things that will quickly hit my bloodstream and help me feel good. And I'm not saying that's bad, by the way. If you want to have a piece of chocolate and you're aware that you're not feeling good, great. If you're coping with food and you don't realize that's what you're doing because you don't realize that you actually just had a very draining session with someone, that's a slippery slope to be on for different reasons. And I think for me, primarily, it was that emotional disconnection from myself, which doesn't sit well. And then because I haven't dealt with the emotion, I've just tried to cover it up with Instagram scrolling or snacking. It's still there, right? What we don't allow to come forward persists. What we resist persists. I haven't gotten rid of the anger that I have or the sadness that I have or whatnot. And now I have to turn around after that little break and go see the next person. And if I do that eight times a day, maybe even four times a day, it's a pretty hard day to come back from. It accumulates all day long. It's additive. What's on your list, by the way? I want to know. What sorts of things make you reach for the chocolate, Monica? (laughs) Oh, it's definitely people who catastrophize. That's a personal one. And it's It was really hard for me for a long time to identify that in people. It was a blind spot. But yeah, yep. Before that, it was fear avoidance. I honestly just could not recognize fear avoidance and name it all that well. And now I can sense fear avoidance pretty quickly and pick up on it. But I would say catastrophizing. And I still think that when someone expresses anger, it's one of those emotions that's harder for me. But on a lighter note, what else is a total drain? People who are way too much of an introvert. (laughs) (laughs) You're like doing all the legwork. (laughs) It sounds terrible, but like people and maybe it's that they don't have social skills, but they just won't make any small talk. It's like, how you doing? Oh, brutal. It's so brutal. And you're just like. Oh, wow. Okay. And there's no personalization. There's no getting to know each other. And and I think that's actually draining for me. Even if it's a simple case, I am definitely an extrovert. I like talking to people. I like getting to know them, even if the things we like are not the same things. I definitely leave the interaction feeling like, eh, I could have done without that. Yeah, that was a drain. 
And then things that are energizing, it's the person who's having their aha moments. An aha moment always fills me up and gets me excited. Writing usually energizes me. Having really interesting conversations. So I I love when we have our conversations on the podcast and especially when we have guests. I think that's above and beyond because it's a new person and a new perspective. Yeah, those are a few of mine. What about yours, Sammy? I think the number one drain for me in regards to patient personalities um, would be more of those patients who seem very disengaged. And I I think this is part Mm. of my like new grad insecurity that I have that if somebody isn't completely bought in and super excited to be here that I'm doing something wrong and they don't believe in me or my skills and I take it super personally. And I'm aware of it now, at least. But I think at first, if somebody seemed disinterested, I'd try extra hard to sell them on why they should Mm -hmm. be here and what I could do for them and how amazing it's going to be when I fix you. And I think that's extremely exhausting. You walk away and you're like, I just feel like I did a whole dance routine for this person who is like, I don't like dancing. You know, you're just like, you're so tired. You're performing. So I think that's Mm -hmm. one of my big triggers. And I find myself doing that with certain types of people as well. For example, an interesting thing that I've started to observe in myself, but if I have somebody who is a healthcare provider of another sort and they come in to see me, I feel like I have to perform extra hard to make sure I seem credible as a medical professional, Mm -hmm. even though they may not know anything about the pelvic floor and I'm the expert in the field. I think that's a lot of insecurity and imposter syndrome that I'm working through in myself. That's definitely a large drain. And in regards to the things that increase my energy, I love the aha moment thing. I I totally am in agreement with that. I love to teach people things. And so if I get somebody who comes in and they're interested and engaged and I bring out the pelvic floor model and we talk about things and they seem interested and they're asking questions and they tell me, oh, I didn't know that. And oh, that that makes sense. That's the stuff I love. I think that's really fulfilling to do. So that's fun. We just got more interns that are shadowing at my job right now and I love teaching them. That's fun. And I think too, just taking breaks, walking on my lunch break, getting out of the office, going to the little coffee shop that I like, texting with my friends on my lunch break or meeting up with my husband for lunch, doing things in the middle of the day that kind of break it up. Those would be the little things that help to recharge me and and bring my energy levels up for that second half of the day, especially. Yep. And speaking of the day, the next idea that we have, we actually got from Dr. Shahid. He is a pediatrician and he has researched and speaks about burnout in doctors specifically, but I thought this was an excellent idea to share with all of us which is to track your energy levels throughout the day. So if you just make a simple bar graph and you write 0 to 10 on your energy from the time you wake up to the time you go to bed, you can track how your energy levels change. And the beauty of this is you can make it as complex or as simple as you want. He says to write out four events or four times of the day with what your energy level is. But you can put way more. You can put highs and lows on there. And if you do that for a few days, 
just like you might tell someone to keep a bladder diary or a bowel diary, you're going to start to get an idea of what your energy levels are. And you'll see that they fluctuate. We're going to find that our energy levels change. So one, it's reassuring for the times when you are low energy, you'll come out of them. But two, you may start to see different patterns. And another interesting concept he talked about was identifying if you're doing a lot of small things that are energy drains. So I think it can be easier to identify the big thing, the patient who just shared the trauma with you or the patient that was really hard to work with for whatever reason. But there's other days where I have felt my energy level just slowly draining away. And part of it is that I haven't infused that day with enough restorative activities or energizing activities. Sammy, you just talked about it beautifully. In the middle of my day, I text my friends. I do something I like. I go out in nature. Those are all things that are going to help rebuild your energy level. And so we can be strategic. For me, going through my emails can be pretty draining. I can combat that by putting on music that I really like to listen to. And when I have that favorite playlist going, it's a lot easier to sit there and respond or go through emails. Or maybe it's only working on emails for a half hour and then saying, okay, I'm going to get up and do something else or I'm going to read because I also enjoy that a lot. So we can actually start to take more control of our time and make it work for us. And while thinking about this, I thought back to all of our guest interviews so far And each of them talked about finding time for themselves to honor their own needs. And that is so critical. We're not robots. We cannot just treat 8, 12, 20 patients a day and think that we're going to be okay because some of those patients will energize us, but some of them will deplete us. And what if it's a day where you have people who are more draining? Nobody really wants the education you came in with and three people are worse and three people are scared and catastrophizing and two of them have never been here before and they're skeptical. What are you going to do on that day? If you're waiting for the day to shape your energy, you're at the mercy of the day and there's going to be good days and there's going to be bad days. I think it's so important to develop your self-awareness by tracking your energy or tracking these common patterns, however you'd like to do it, because that arms you with information. So when you are tired and you say, oh my God, I'm just so exhausted right now, you can pull out your list and say, what are the things that usually energize me? Oh yeah, you know what? It's calling my friend Kristen. I'm going to call my friend Kristen and have a good conversation and I'll feel better by the end of that. And sometimes it really is watching a great TV show, reading a book, baking and enjoying food. I don't think there's anything that's good or bad. One of the things that Dr. Shahid had also said is that we have the power sometimes to organize our day and to not link together all of these things that are energy drains all in a row, but instead fluctuate them so we can maintain a more constant level. So I always think about it this way. You know which patients drain you and which patients energize you on average. And if you have any control over your schedule or if you have the ability to even write notes for the people doing the scheduling for you, it may be that you say, please put this patient during this time frame only or please arrange my schedule in this way or try to consciously put something energizing immediately following somebody who is really draining. 
consciously organizing your time in your professional day is super important. That would be my other little tip there is that I don't think it's all out of our hands quite as much as we think, even in regards to patient care. We may not be moving people around on our own, but I think that we can do little adjustments like that to make things easier. I know I've had certain people where I'm like, please don't put this person back to back with other people. Just put them at the end of the day. Do it right before lunch. Do it right at the end of the day, but no other times. Yeah, that's amazing. Stop offering people 8 a.m.s if you hate it. If they need to take it, they will. But if you've got an open time when the patient's like, oh, whatever time's good for you, give them your best time. I'm best at 10 a.m. Why don't you come in at 10 a.m. on Thursday rather than 4.15? Gosh, you're not getting the best of me at that point. Yeah, for sure. I think you just have to be really honest with yourself about whether you're more energized or not after it. Because there's times that I can go online and feel energized and there's other times where I go online and I feel more depleted after whatever social media thing I was just a part of. And then if that was your way of coping with something that already drained you, now you really got to go back to your list and say, okay, so that didn't work and that's okay. Not everything will work every day. So what now? What if my friend Kristen's not available? (laughs) Then what do I do? Yeah. I also think, too, even on those days that it doesn't work, because it won't work every day, there's going to be days that are hard. And there's going to be days where your gas tank might be very empty and you might feel very depleted. And I think recognizing how you feel and just being like, I feel this way, I accept it, it's because of X, Y, and Z. I also think that takes away some of its power, too. Like, I think those times where we we tell ourselves work shouldn't drain me this much and I don't know why I'm taking on all my patient's stuff and we beat ourselves up about it and it's not okay to feel bad. That makes it harder on us too. Naming it and recognizing it and just accepting it for what it is. You can always try to do something different the next day. And I I think it's great to be proactive. I'm not saying you shouldn't be proactive, but I also just think that simply being aware takes some of the stress away from it. A hundred percent. It's okay not to be okay for our patients and for us. Yep. And emotional intelligence is not lying to yourself and forcing toxic positivity down your throat. It's exactly what you said. Finally, one thing I would also add to this would be that some of the things that can drain us in our jobs is a lack of self-care throughout the day in regards to our bodily needs. I know as pelvic PTs, we always see those people who are like teachers or flight attendants or things like that, and they don't use the bathroom or take a drink of water I don't think we give enough credence to how much that stuff affects us. Some of the worst (laughs) fights that I've had with my husband have been when we're both hungry and neither of us realize we're hungry. And then we eat a snack and we're like, oh, I'm sorry. (laughs) I think that stuff, it's you don't want to be, I think a lot of us don't want to admit to ourselves that we are animals and we have needs. Like I need to have food and have my body be comfortable and not in pain and I need water and I need to pee when I need to pee. So I would also add that stuff is stuff that can be a drain because I know that my patience runs a little thin right before lunchtime. It just does. So at least you can just be aware of it. Just know that you're an organism that has physical needs and that's okay. And you should take care of them. It's There's never not enough time in the day to pee. I hate that. You know, like I hate that we do that to ourselves. Like go pee. And there's just people that are going to take a higher level of performance from you. Like you just... 
you cannot be hungry and have to pee and be tired and drained from all your other patients and then go into this highly stressful environment that requires a lot of emotional intelligence and also critical thinking. And there's just too much going on. If we're honest with ourselves about that stuff, we can perform better. And it goes back to what we talked about at the beginning, which is patient outcomes. I wholeheartedly believe that if I'm operating at a higher level and I'm able to think better because I had food in my system and I'm not so emotionally drained from my day, I know I'm going to get better care. I know that this person is going to get more out of the session. And what is that but a better patient outcome? And a better outcome for me, too, because I was in a better place. So I think when we're talking about outcomes, which I, I see as a theme of the first part of this episode, emotional intelligence equals better outcomes for patient, better outcomes for you. And now we just need more research to support it. <laughs> <laughs> so there are a few strategies to start working on your emotional intelligence to further enhance it. Give them a shot. Let us know how it goes over on Instagram or Facebook. And we hope that you learn something about yourself, that you start to think of your schedule in a different way, and you start to think of your energy as an ebb and flow that you can shape. All right. Until next week, take care and stay conscious. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Let's keep the conversation going on Instagram at The Conscious Clinician and Facebook backslash The Conscious Clinician. Links are in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and write a review for the podcast to grow our community. Stay conscious, everyone.